Thank you so much for being with us, whether you're uh, in this room or whether you're in your room at home or if you're listening on Catch Up. Thank you so much for joining us. So, uh, it's not the big fella. Uh, it's not the, um, the lovely RE teacher lady. Uh, it's not the Scotsman. It's the beardy man. And uh, I expect some of you, probably most of you, know the story about the three Scots sisters who wanted to get their parents something really special, something that would really help them for their golden wedding anniversary. And uh, after much exchange on the WhatsApp group they had, they settled on the idea of three sessions with a marriage guidance counsellor. And at the end of the third session, the counsellor, less out of professionalism and probably more out of exasperation, takes the wife in his arms and plants on her lips, well, a real Frenchie, and turns to the husband and says, now that is what your wife needs three times every week. The Scotsman looks at his wife, turns to the counsellor and says, oh, well, okay. Well, uh, Mondays, uh, Wednesdays and, uh, and Fridays, I'll send her along. Uh, and I like that little story because it just reminds us that there are some things in life. I've got a thumbs up from Pete on that. Oh, good. There are some things in life which don't lend themselves to delegation. Uh, marriage is one of those and parenting is another. And today is Father's Day and this is the second part of uh, a two-parter entitled What Kind of Father? And last week with Psalm 103, we looked at the fact that God, is, the God of the Bible is a father in whom we can have absolute security. Why? Because of his compassion towards us, that it is an unbelievably, overwhelmingly visceral love. And it doesn't matter how good or bad or absent or present your own human father is or was, we all need a heavenly father like this. And I know that in recent times, some of you have lost your earthly father. Some of you are mother. And you still feel that loss. You're standing still in the grief of that loss. And you need to know his compassion. You need to know, as Paul writes in the beginning of 2 Corinthians, he is the father of compassion and the God of all comfort. And I pray that you would know that. You need... And we all need his deep, counterintuitive, unconditional, visceral love that I spoke about and sought to unpack here last Sunday. But that's only the first thing that we need. Today, we're looking again at Psalm 103, I'm not attempting to exegete the entire psalm. I'm just going to focus on drawing something out of verses 8 and 9. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always chide, he will not always accuse, nor will he harbour his anger forever. What are we seeing here? We see a father who has anger. Is that a surprise? I mean, we focus rightly on God's love his grace, his undeserved kindness to us. And we're prone to focus on that so much that we can forget 
that he is a God of justice. He is a God of law. He is a God of, if this, then that. A God who says to us, choose. Famously, in Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, he says, This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now, choose life so that you and your children may live. And it goes on to say, and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice, and hold fast to him. He says, choose life. We all make choices all of the time. Big choices and little choices. God has given us free will. And in Galatians 6, 7, we read, and remember this is addressed to believers, this is addressed to the children of God, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps, and a woman reaps, what he sows. Our decisions have consequences. You know, God didn't give us ten suggestions. He gave us ten commandments. And Jesus sets for us an even higher standard. He says, he makes it a heart issue. And he says, you've heard it says, do not murder. Well, I say to you, whoever says to his brother, you fool is in danger of the fire of, fire of hell. Jesus says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, he who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I was actually only chatting two days ago to a brother. And I think we must have been maybe talking about Psalm 119, that verse that says, how can a young man keep his way pure? And I'll tell you, it's not just the young, it's the middle-aged men as well. How do you keep your way pure? And I was sharing with him how a, a wonderful man of God who, who mentored me for a little while in my 20s, Doug Sparks, he says to me, he was an American, he says to me one day, do you know, Brian, God has given you a secret weapon against lust. And I said, I didn't know that. I didn't know that, Doug. No. What, what, wow, what is it? He said, well, God has given you two little muscles at the back of your neck and you can use them to go, mm. <laughs> Do you know, even walking down the street, men, we have choices, we have decisions to make. And our choices, our behaviours have consequences. God is not a teddy bear. Hebrews chapter 12 ends with a warning. Worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. We see here in Psalm 103 a God who has anger. But he's also a father. And his anger is compassionate anger. It's not payback anger. Not retribution. This is not tit-for-tat anger. This is not payback anger. Payback anger is very common. You know, when your children inconvenience you or humiliate you or cause you pain in some way, it can feel a very natural thing to give them payback anger. You annoyed me. I'm going to annoy you. 
You humiliated me, I'm going to humiliate you. You hurt my feelings, I'm going to hurt your feelings. You created unpleasantness for me, I'm going to create unpleasantness for you. <clears throat> I hope you know that payback in a family never works. It always poisons. Payback anger is not like the anger that comes and passes over us and leaves us better for it. It's not like the rain that passes over as it did on Wednesday night and left us on Friday, Thursday morning with everything lush and green after it. Do you remember Thursday morning? It was lovely, lush and green after the rain had gone and refreshed everything in the air. Payback anger is more like the rain that parks itself over us and just swamps and floods and destroys everything. Why does payback anger never work in a family? Because everyone in your family, including you, is made in God's image. And our parenthood is to be an image, a reflection of God's parenthood. And God never gives payback anger to his, his children. So he never gets angry? No. No, that's not what it says. What it says is, as we just read, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbour his anger forever. This is a God who gets angry, but he doesn't harbour his anger. He doesn't keep it. This isn't a God who never gets angry. This is a God who does get angry, but it's never payback anger, and he doesn't stay angry for a long time. We read he's slow to anger. So what's behind the anger? What's driving it? This is anger, but it's driven by compassion. My father was a peace lover. He's a gentleman. He did get angry, but rarely. And he never struck me, except once. He caned me. Don't get too upset about that, because I was beaten a lot harder and numerous times in secondary school. Different times. No, I was 10, and I'd stolen money from his drawer. And rather stupidly, I'd actually put it in my shirt top pocket, and when I bent over, it fell out. <laughs> It was the equivalent, I suppose, of about five pounds today. But after I was caught red-handed, an hour passed by, and then he told me to go to his bedroom. And there he made a short speech, and he told me to bend over the end of the bed. And at the end of the short speech, he had said, this is because I care about you. And almost crying, he said, and this is causing me far more pain than it will cause you. He disciplined me because he loved me. And he didn't want me to grow up being a thief. I was foolish to steal from him. I could probably, if I had need, have asked for some money and he probably would have given it to me. I was foolish. Children are with very few exceptions, foolish. Bible tells us so. Proverbs 22:15. folly. Foolishness is bound up 
in the heart of a child. But the rod of discipline drives it far from him. The anger of God is driven by compassion. It's slow. It's not out of control. It's completely under control. His compassion, his love is permanent. But his anger is temporary. Why? Because his anger is only driven by compassion. It's never payback. It's deliberate. It's intentional. It's purposeful anger. There are two kinds of parents, there are at least two kinds of parents, who will wreck their children and leave them feeling like orphans. One is like the parents of the family who lived opposite us when my four children were growing up. We had four, they had four, not dissimilar ages. I'm not suggesting we were perfect parents, we certainly were not. But these folks, their approach to parenting was only to be reasonable and reasoning. He was a lawyer. They went in for a lot of negotiation. The trouble was, the kids got so good at it and could present all kinds of arguments why they should have their way, all kinds of procrastination, the parents just got worn down. And I'm going to say, they produced the most miserable bunch of kids that I've ever encountered. I hope they're not listening. <laughs> the completely permissive kind of parent who never gets angry, never lays down standards, doesn't confront, doesn't engage, is detached, is permissive, who in offence essentially says, just do what feels right. Look, here's enough rope, you can hang yourself. We have a name for them. We call them neglecting parents. And then you have the parents with payback anger, who are saying inside, you've upset me, you've disturbed me, so I'll pay you back. It'll make me feel better. We have a name for them too. We call them abusive parents. Either of these can damage or destroy the spirit of a child. The permissive or the payback will cause the child to say, I don't know where the lines are. I don't, I don't know who I am. I don't know if I'm loved. Why? Because both payback anger and no anger come from somewhere which isn't love. The more a father loves his son, the more he will hate in him the liar, the thief, the drunk, the sluggard. If God didn't get angry with us about the ways that people destroy themselves and spoil the likeness of himself that he has set within each one of us, then he wouldn't be good. And he certainly wouldn't be loving. Anger isn't the opposite of love. The opposite of love in a parent is indifference. It's abdication. So what kind of anger is okay? It's the anger that looks at the flaws, at the dustness, at what's wrong, and is committed to very purposefully doing something about it. In the words of Barack Obama, any fool can have a child. That doesn't make you a father. It's the courage to raise a child that makes you a father. Our Heavenly Father is not lacking in courage. And what he offers us is compassionate anger. And just as we need his incredible compassion, we need his compassionate anger. 
We need someone sufficiently committed and emotionally involved with us to get angry with us when we need it, but unselfishly so. No axe to grind, no desire for payback. We need that. And God says, I have it. I have the thing that you need. I have the thing that you're looking for. I have for you this overwhelming love. Like a mother for an infant when the milk comes in. And in that you have absolute safety and security. And I have compassionate anger for you. Why? Because I want you to grow. Because I want you to have a fruitful life. I am Father. I am your Father, God says. And you are my beloved child. Now I could stop there. But I'm not going to. Because it's Father's Day. And we're heading into the New Testament now. You know, raising a child is an incredible privilege. In the words of Michael Bublé, fatherhood is the greatest thing that could ever happen, he says. You can't explain it until it happens. It's like trying to tell someone what water feels like before they've ever swum in it. In Ephesians 6 verse 4, we find some very specific instructions addressed to fathers. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. It's a really short verse, but it's packed with instructions and help and encouragement for fathers. Exasperate? Well, the word there has to do with anger. Is it saying, never get your child angry? That would be impossible. If you love your child, and they're not an angel, complete angel, and you're not a complete coward, you're going to make them angry sometimes. Someone once said, if you never get cross with your kids, you're probably not spending enough time with them. What I think he's saying is don't create in your child that sort of settled anger. A kind of disposition of being frustrated and resentful in an ongoing and permanent way. What does it say to do instead? It says, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Training. Well, the word here, the source word here means discipline, firmness, enforcing boundaries. And sometimes, discipline has to say, I've given you clear boundaries and I'm here to police them. So you can't go to the party. You can't have your iPad. You can't have the TV. You can't do this you, or you can't do that. Yes, I'm bringing some pain into your life. But only so it will wake you up. Only so it will hopefully change you. So you can avoid the far more destructive pain that will certainly come to you later if I don't do this now. You know, what I always understood about parenting, the first two things I understood about parenting was, number one, this child, your children, need to know that they are wonderfully, irrevocably, and unconditionally loved 
valued, treasured, and accepted. Have you got that? That's number one. Number two is much shorter. They need to know they're not in charge. And it's extraordinary how young a child can be when they seek to exert that in-chargeness and be in control. So it's, this verse is talking about training, which is about setting limits, boundaries, enforcing them, about discipline, and instruction. And the word here has the sense of counselling, listening, persuading, coaxing. So in training, you're laying down the rules, showing you're in charge and they're not, but that they're safe. In counselling, you're listening, coaching, you're loving, you're bringing them along. God's word is saying, <clears throat> if you're going to avoid exasperating, if you're going to avoid that settled, building that settled sense of resentment, If you're going to avoid frustrating them, you need to bring discipline and you need to bring counselling. You need to bring a balance of truth and love. What's the best way to, what's the best way to create a resentful, angry kid? Just be unbalanced. That way or that way. If it's all discipline, just hitting the rules all the time, you can frustrate them because you're forgetting the child is human. Made in the image of God, not a dog to be trained. But if you only counsel and chat and leave them to work out where all the lines are for themselves, you leave them with the impression they only have to obey what they choose to understand and what they choose to agree with. You can frustrate them because you're forgetting they're not adults yet. So we need to be absolutely consistent and predictable in laying down good, sensible rules and sticking with them. But on the other hand, we need to give them time and touch, affection, listening and counsel. There's a balance here. And in this verse, there's a second balance where it says, bring them up. Bring them up. The purpose of parenting is to bring them up and to get them ready to not need you. To bring them to a position where they can move progressively, move progressively from being completely dependent on you to being able to make good, sound choices and move on safely to where they're not dependent on you. The word there for bring is to nurture, to nourish, to bring to maturity. And if it sounds organic, it's because it is a gradual thing. Yes, it takes time. But if you push them out too quickly, in effect make them adults before they're ready, they're going to become frustrated. They'll feel they weren't covered, they weren't supported. The parents were not fully engaged with them. But as well as bring them, there's that word up, which is where, you, is where you're taking them, up and out. 
a balance between letting them get out so they're not dependent on you, but at the same time, giving the kind of nurture and support they need so they don't feel they've been pushed out into independence too quickly. A balance. Bringing, nurturing and preparing them for the time when they'll be safe to send out. And that's a progressive thing too. And there's a third thing in this little verse. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. It's become quite hip, quite trendy in our society for a parent to say, oh, I don't want to impose my beliefs on my kid. I want them to choose for themselves. There's another abdication. Why? Well, to make any kind of life, you have to have a moral framework. No moral framework equals anarchy. Anarchy equals misery. Any moral instruction worthy of the name is predicated on a worldview. A worldview. A worldview is what we believe about the realities around us. Do you know the Nazis? allowed them to do the things that they did because they had a godless, existential worldview. Thank you, Nietzsche. The surefire way to really abdicate as a parent is to say to your child, I'm not going to tell you what to believe. Do you know, even if a parent is telling a child, I want you to be a Mormon, or I want you to be a Muslim. At least that's not moral abdication. Moral abdication is not to have any reference point, not to have any Lord to point the child to. So how do we do that? How do we bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord? Well, that's really another sermon, but let's just have three quick points. Firstly, pray for, but also with your children. Model it. Show them how you relate to God as Father. Secondly, in a way that's appropriate to their age, talk openly about your own walk of faith with God. What God means to you, where you have travelled with God. Share openly your story with them to the extent that it's appropriate for their age. And if you've got family issues, well, share. And even pray with them about those. You know, when my four were aged uh, 10 to 16, so my youngest was 10, we fostered, and we fostered for three and a half years, a little girl who came to us when she was just coming up eight. And she was a nightmare, a complete nightmare. Nearly broke us but with us for three and a half years. And those were the ages of our children when she came, 10 to 16. And there were times when we needed to share with them what we were feeling and experiencing and actually welcome their support, but also be open with them about how we're feeling. And some of the, poof, some of my most precious memories were praying with my older two children at that time about the challenges that we were facing and they were old enough to recognise and join in with that. 
Talk openly about your own faith, your own walk with God, what God means with, to you. And if you can, pray with them, but in an age-appropriate way. Thirdly, live the example that you want them to follow. Have your life together, at least to the extent where your child can see that your life is consistent with what you believe. Let's not raise children who are irritated by hypocrisy or frustrated by the lack of any clear sense of direction. So, in summary, if you're going to avoid raising children who have that exasperation, that settled sense of resentment and frustration, you have to bring a balance of truth and love. Clear, consistent lines, as well as touch and time and affection. A balance of not making them too dependent too soon. Sorry, not making them too dependent on you and not pushing them out too hard too soon. And live out your own convictions where they can see it. Talk freely about your own faith, how it works for you. And if you do this, you would at least be signposting them to a father who loves them and to a saviour who will keep them. You probably know some, perhaps many, you probably know that many people under-discipline their children. Why do they do that? Well, it's a very tempting thing to under-discipline your children. Firstly, it feels easier, requires less effort in the short term, doesn't save you effort in the long term. I'm afraid many parents under-discipline their children, I think so, because they want their child's approval. Some parents want to be their child's best friend. Need, those parents need to understand there's lots of people who can be their child's best friend, but only you can be mum or dad. Some parents mess up parenting because they push their children along out of a desire to gain some reflected glory from their hoped-for successes. Some parents mess up parenting because they're using parenting to meet their own needs. Their own needs? Yeah. Their needs for affection, for recognition, for significance, or even security. And what's the antidote to that? What's the antidote for messing up parenting because a parent is using it to meet their own needs? I hope it's obvious. The antidote is go to a better place to have those needs met. And uh, if you're not sure where that is, perhaps listen again or listen to last week's talk where you'll find a better place to meet your need for love and security, self-esteem and significance. Being secure and settled in your relationship with a heavenly father who loves you as his own, goes a long way to equipping you to thrive as a parent, as a mum or as a dad. And don't forget, being a mum or dad, you're doing something amazing. So do it well. And for best results, follow Maker's instructions.
Thank you. We're going to pray now, and I'd like you all to stand. Let's bow our heads. Lord God, we thank you for our fathers, our natural fathers, foster fathers, adopted and stepfathers, and those who have simply been like a dad. Thank you for your design and provision that we should live and grow under the covering of a father. Some of us have benefited from fathers who were kind and wise and to us were heroes. And some of us had fathers who were absent or even behaved in ways for which we have now to find forgiveness. However it was for us, Thank you that it was your wish and your design to place us first and foremost in families with mother and father to instruct and to train us, to cover, protect and provide for us. Parents who would love and cherish us, thank you for your good plan. We recall that the first commandment with a promise is to honour father and mother so that life may go well and be long. This is your commandment. And it's high on the list. So help us, Father, to consider this and to speak and act in accordance with this command of yours to honour father and mother, irrespective of whether or not we feel our parents did a good job, doing a good job, whether we feel they're deserving of honour, help us to obey your command. And for those fathers who are here, and those not here but represented by family members, those watching, those we're thinking of, we ask, firstly of first importance to their children, help them to love support and cherish the mother of their children. In the pressures of daily life, give us fathers wisdom in recognising what is of real value and importance and in discerning clearly what our true priorities need to be and help us to exercise the discipline to live by those priorities. Help us to cherish our children and our grandchildren and to demonstrate our love for them by sharing time and adventures and by living a life and leadership example which they can follow in safety. We ask all these things in and through the name of our Lord Jesus and all God's children in agreement said together, Amen.